Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central Festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom transforming the world, and reaching nations making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. If I could just call you to order, please. Thank you very much. Just introduce myself, first of all. My name is Mike Springer. Uh, I'm from Hope Church, Harrogate. And it's my great pleasure today just to introduce a really good friend of ours, a friend of mine anyway, I'm sure a friend of you too, a um, friend of us at, at Devoted, Adrian Holloway, been here many years, as you know, uh, even at North as well, that preceded our time here. And I'm guessing that you must have come because you want to be very happy people today. So happiness rules, happiness rocks. Adrian has obviously um, worked across the whole New Frontiers family for years. Um, we've, he's run sort of evangelist summits, um, all sorts of um, gospel presentation meetings called Front Edge and other things. Uh, now t- travels a lot, speaks at various universities, um, goes to privileged places like Durham and speaks there, speaks to large numbers of people, uh, but also loves equipping the saints as well. So uh, let's just put our hands together and give Adrian a great round of applause. And what's going to happen here is Adrian's going to speak uh, for, yeah, for about 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes. Very happy to take questions and answers after that. I'll just let Adrian deal with that directly. And we should be finished about three. So that just gives you a bit of a feel. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's great. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you, Mike. It's lovely to be with you guys. Thanks for coming this afternoon. Um, for those of you I don't know, here's a photo of uh, my wife, Julia, and our four Uh, children. And to introduce our subject, I thought I'd just tell you about a funny thing uh, that happened uh, to me one time when I was driving my car. It was quite late at night and um, I was just uh, pulling away from a roundabout and I noticed some flashing blue lights in my rear view mirror. I'm being pulled over by the police. And um, now, normally when this happens to me, I have to confess this happened to me quite a lot uh, over the years, um, (laughs) Normally, when this happens to me at this point, I immediately feel guilty because normally I already know what it is that I've done wrong. But I've got to be honest with you guys and say on this particular occasion, I couldn't actually think of anything that I had done wrong. So I thought, well, I don't know, maybe the policeman's just bored or uh, maybe he's seen how well I'm driving. He wants to congratulate me on my driving. And then I thought, now, hang on a minute. I know what's happened here. He's seen my Christian car sticker. He's seen how well I'm driving. He's put the two together. He wants to ask me about Jesus. So I was feeling pretty confident as I wound down my window. Policeman comes over. He says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. He says, were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? You know, and I'm thinking... I hadn't realized that early indication was an offense. Anyway, um, so he says, step out of the car, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? And I said to him, oh, gosh, that's a really good question. When was the last time? I said, "Uh, three months ago? I said, he said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. So I blow into the bag, and I hand it to him. He's looking at it, and I say to him, look, you know, is he looking at the breathalyzer test? I said to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative. It must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctions. But throughout that whole conversation, it felt like a case of mistaken identity. And when God encourages us to share our faith story, when Christ calls us 
to go into all the world, it's not a case of mistaken identity. Because unlike that policeman, God knows exactly what you're like. So God knows how you and I feel about this subject and this whole thing. He knows what you're like, and he believes in you. He backs you. He supports you. He empowers you to share the gospel in your world. So we can speak good news secure in the knowledge that Jesus is for us. Now, he's proved that when he died for us on the cross. He's on our side. So yes, it's true. In the Bible, Jesus calls us to give away the good news, not to keep it to ourselves. But as we do this, we're going to see this afternoon that there are many benefits for us. There are huge advantages for me of living a life. There are massive advantages and benefits for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people. And perhaps I should just comment on the fact that I've chosen such an unusual approach here. Now, obviously, we don't tell other people the good news for our benefit. So when it comes to obeying Christ's commands, we obey Christ's commands because Christ is the king. Yes, we'd all agree with that. But therefore, the benefits that I get are secondary considerations. They're like fringe benefits. But I just thought maybe just for 35 minutes... Could we just talk about those fringe benefits? Because they're really good. And maybe just have a look at them. I mean, just for a a short while. Is that okay? We just have a bit of fun. So here are some fringe benefits. Number one, there'll be more joy in our lives. I was talking to uh, a woman in our church called Heather. And uh, Heather is friends. she, she, She had a friendship with a couple of sisters called Sarah and Anna. And uh, Heather is part of our church, and um, basically Heather says to her friend Sarah, you know how faith is a really important part of my life? You probably know that I'm in a church. In fact, you might even know I'm in this little small group. There's about eight or ten of us. Next week, our little group is going on this course It's all about exploring the big questions of life. It's called the Alpha Course. Now, I was just wondering, Sarah, whether you would come along with me just for week one on a no-strings-attached, one-off basis. Just come along for week one if you like, see what you think, and if you don't like it, no need to come back. That's the invitation. Yeah? The following morning, it's Sarah's job. She's a trainee lawyer. What she has to do, first thing is to deliver some legal documents from her flat where she lives to the courthouse in central London. It's a fairly simple task, moving some papers from A to B, but there's a certain amount of pressure because, of course, if for some reason she doesn't deliver the papers on time, the trial can't start on time. So she thinks, no problem. I will just set a couple of alarms. She even arranges for her friend to phone her in case her two alarms fail, So she's got all the bases covered. She gets up on time. Sarah gets to the bus stop. As she gets to the bus stop, overnight, the council have coned off the bus lane because they're going to be digging up the Victorian sewers and replacing them. So there are no buses running on the main road. She thinks, don't panic. Don't panic. I've still got loads of time. I will simply walk to the underground train station. So she walks to the underground train station. When she gets to the underground train station... The shutters are closed, and there is a board outside. There's a padlock on the gates. London Underground regrets to inform you that the Northern Line is part suspended. And she doesn't even read the rest of it, because immediately she's thinking, don't panic. I've now got to walk to the Overland train station. I've still got enough time. So she starts quite a long walk to the Overland train station. When she gets close to the Overland train station, she can see that people are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. All she can do is join the end of the queue. She just shuffles forward, shuffles down the steps. Eventually, she gets onto the platform. Again, she's at the back of the platform. The trains are coming, and she's queuing to get to the front of the platform. And eventually, by the time she gets to the front of the platform, she looks up at the board to see when the next train is coming. And she's looking at when it's going to leave. And she's beginning to think, I don't think I'm going to be able to get these papers to the courthouse before the trial starts, given when that train's due to leave 
And she starts to get a little bit jumpy and nervous. And then she thinks, what would my Christian friend Heather do if Heather was in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah had never, ever prayed to God as an adult. So she's standing on the front of the platform. She closes her eyes, not out loud. She prays. Hello, God. It's Sarah. I guess if you're God, you know that. Um, So if you're real, uh, if you're like really real, you're there, then I guess you must know already that I'm in a bit of a pickle here and that I've got to get the papers to the courthouse in order for the trial. And if they aren't there on time, everybody will know that it's me that's messed up and my firm will look bad and I'll... You must know all that. So, uh, God, if you're real, um, please, please, could you please help me out? I don't know how you're going to do this, but if you could possibly help me out, I'd be really grateful. Uh, Yours sincerely. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Sarah, amen. And no sooner she finished this prayer, she opens her eyes and she looks at the person who's standing on her right on the platform and it's the barrister. The barrister who she's supposed to give the papers to at the courthouse. And she's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. She just hands the papers over. And of course, he thinks this is fantastic. He says, oh, thank you so much. What a marvelous service. I'm really very impressed. What a splendid firm. Now I can prepare on the train. This is really very good. I haven't had this before. It's really very, very good. I'm very impressed. Do pass on my compliments to the partners. It's really very good indeed. Thank you so much. So he gets on the train. And Sarah's there thinking, now come on. What are the chances I mean, come on, what are the chances that the first time I ever pray a prayer as an adult, the one person who's on the planet who could have solved my problem at that moment would just happen to be standing right next to me? Anyway, you won't be surprised to know that Sarah came on week one of the Alpha course. And she she brought her sister Anna. So Sarah and Anna both came along. That's when I met them. And... They came along, they stayed on the course, they came on the Holy Spirit weekend away, and at the Holy Spirit weekend away, they made a decision to follow Christ. And then subsequent to that, they were both baptized, and actually subsequent to that, they both got married to two young men in our church and are still doing uh, really well following Jesus today. And it was such a great story, and so encouraging for Heather, that I decided at a leaders' meeting to ask Heather in front of the little group of leaders, hey, how was it from your point of view? You know, must have been amazing for you. And because it was recorded, I actually wrote down what Heather said when I asked her that question. Heather said this, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. Heather said, Praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. Thinking evangelistically, she said, has built a mountain of gratitude in my mind for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How you and Christ are now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? So you are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off on a normal day, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. 
Because the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in education and no Christians working in healthcare and no Christians working in the media and no Christians in business and no Christians in local government. The devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian ghettos. Why would the devil be delighted? Because the devil knows that in John chapter 17, Jesus didn't pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows that in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. So you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working, God is working. When you enter your workplace next week, Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work in your town, in your city next week through you. That's the first benefit. Second benefit, we will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our uh, four children came home from school uh, with an invitation to a multicultural fundraising evening at the school. And at this event, I got talking to this man who was wearing a Mexican hat a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. And so I'm looking at him, and he looks absolutely fantastic. And I say, where are you from? You know, seeing all the different cultures he's got, and where are you from? He said, Iraq. <laughs> like he really was from Iraq. Uh, so I was slightly taken aback by this. And so I said, oh. Uh, and so I, we had a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. And then there was a whole hour of multicultural dancing. So for a whole hour, all of us in the room, this, this is my multicultural dancing, and we were all doing this dancing for a whole hour. It was all quite, we were quite sweaty, you know, like you get when you do multicultural dancing. And um, then I bump into him again about an hour later, and this time I say to him, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? And he looks at me very intently, and then he beckons me, doesn't say anything, he beckons me kind of secretively, furtively towards the bar. Like this. So he just walks off towards the bar, and so I follow him over towards the bar. When we get to the bar, he, he leans on the bar, and he looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear, and he says, I have completely rejected Islam. So I lean on the bar. I look both ways. I check that the coast is clear. And I say, so have I. He said, he said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yeah, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yeah, we have. He said, well, uh, what are you doing on Saturday? He says, why don't you come over on Saturday, bring your family, and my wife, Mira, and I come over at 3 p.m. We will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over at Saturday, on Saturday at 3 p.m., and we will have dinner. Now, just to give you some background to what happened that morning, um, on Saturdays, every Saturday, I am in sole charge of our four children. This is quite a big deal for me, okay? So the way that I cope with this responsibility is I take them all swimming. Family splash, yeah? So there are two key outcomes that I have to hit every single Saturday. Number one, when I present these children back to my wife, there are two things I need to have achieved. Number one, I need to have made sure that none of them have drowned. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when I present them back to my wife, they have to all be fully clothed. And that's quite a challenge for me because the two younger ones, they think it's amusing to run around the changing room naked and therefore I have to trap them and clothe them against their will as they're running around the changing room. So, so this is a, this, I find this quite hard, to, the, the trapping and the clothing side of things. So on this particular Saturday, I achieved both out- outcomes. They're all still alive and they've got clothes on. So far, so good, yeah? Problem is, it's taking me ages. The changing room takes me absolutely ages. And so we're running late. So I'm looking at the clock. We're back home for lunch. I'm thinking, 
I don't see how we're going to get over to Salar's for 3 p.m. and have lunch here. And then suddenly I think, let's go to McDonald's. Yeah. And so I say, hey, why don't we all go to McDonald's? And all the kids go, yay, Daddy McDonald's, great call, yay, fantastic. So we go to McDonald's. And at McDonald's, and, and sorry, this is relevant to the rest of the story, this next bit. I have a Big Mac, large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. The benefit of hindsight, I wish that I had never had the lot. Anyway, never mind. So that's what I have. So anyway, the good news is at 3 o'clock, we arrive on time at Salazar. I'm feeling really pleased with myself. Here we are on time, as advertised, 3 p.m. And so he opens the door, and his wife, Mira, is standing right there in the doorway. She's a doctor. And they say to us, welcome. Welcome to our home. Let us all go through and have dinner. And internally I'm thinking, what now? Because I thought that the invitation was, let's come over at 3 o'clock and we will have dinner. Dinner being, by definition, an evening meal. We come over at 3 o'clock and later on, at some unspecified time in the evening, we will be having dinner. But no, the actual words of the invitation were, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being a 3 p.m. meal. And so they open the door to the living room and there is this huge table and there are already, I'm not exaggerating, trays of food on this table but there is only one chair because she explains to me that in their culture none of them can start eating until I, as the guest of honor, have started eating. And so I sit down as I'm encouraged to do in the one chair and she's bringing in all these trays, you know, dishes from different regional parts of Kurdistan are coming in. It's all, the whole national product of Kurdistan is coming in. I mean, she must have spent all week cooking all this food. And so there's a massive table, and I'm sitting there, and I feel, I feel, in this chair, I feel a bit like a king. You know, all this food in front of me, various women standing around, you know, and I'm there in, uh, in my throne. And, but then I think, oh no, I think of Ronald McDonald. I am already full of Ronald McDonald. And then I'm looking at all this food, and they're waiting for you to start eating. And I think of that verse in the Bible that says, eat whatever is set before you. And I think back to my early days as a young Christian when I promised that I would obey every command in the gospel. Well, I can tell you, at the end of this meal, I have never felt so bloated in all my life. I mean, I'm ex- I can actually feel myself expanding in Salah's flat. I'm almost spherical by the end of this meal as, I, as I'm there. And I'm sort of passing in and out of consciousness, rolling around. Now, actually, Salah is saying something to be really quite important. So while I'm in this kind of inebriated state, Salah is describing a profound intellectual rejection of Islam that he's gone through. And he is complaining to me that he hasn't got another worldview to put in its place. So, for example, his seven-year-old daughter, Lara, has come back from school and said, Daddy, what am I? And he says, Lara, what do you mean? What sort of question is that? Daddy, what am I? She said, well, I'm not a Muslim. You told me that. We're not Christians. You told me that. So what am I? So Salah is searching for a way of thinking about life that he can understand and make sense of the world and communicate to his daughter. We're having this amazing conversation and then we get up to leave. I mean, it's actually quite hard for me to get up to leave. Um, because I, somehow, I, can, I can't even stand on my own feet, so I'm leaning against the wall like this. But I never forget what he said. As I'm le- we're there in the hallway saying goodbye, and Salah says, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. And I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in Salah's flat. All I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening. But God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually searching. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as if God... We're making his appeal through us. At the gym, incidentally, I needed to go to the gym after the episode at Salah's flat. At the gym, 
I asked my non-Christian mate, Chris, um, in fact, he asked me, what have you been up to today? I said, Chris, I've been preparing a talk to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? He said, tell them not to say, the good book says this and the good book says that, because people like me, Adrian, are quite cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are cynical about religion. But they feel positive about relationships. I said, most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but they feel positive about Jesus as a person. Most people I meet, Chris, have a high opinion of Jesus as a person. I said, Chris, the great thing is that what's on offer is not religion. What's on offer, Chris, is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, oh, that depends where I am. I said, what? He said, that depends where I am. I said, what on earth do you mean? He says, well, when I get on my bicycle and I cycle out of London and I get into the countryside and I can see the, the hills and the fields all around me, I can't bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes, but I have absolutely no idea what it is. And I felt privileged. I felt honored to be in the room. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ. And God is on your side. And as we take up our new role, we'll be amazed to see how all the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. And we're promised that when we speak on his behalf, God is going to back us up. And we'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Okay, third benefit. We'll see ourselves making a difference. Now, you love this. You absolutely love it when God, the real God who really exists, comes into somebody's life through you. You love that. What a thrilling idea. God comes into somebody else's life through you. And it's as we go that Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, came into the world to save save sinners. And Jesus said of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So we need to remember that Jesus did make a conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. See, his reputation was, oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh yeah, we've all heard of him. He's a glutton. He's a wine-bibber. Yeah, yeah, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said because Jesus made a habit of spending time deliberately with irreligious people. So as soon as we even start praying for that skeptical person, we're pointing ourselves in the direction that Jesus pointed himself. We're, we're, We're lining ourselves up with the mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And so we need to see that when we prioritize unconvinced people, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us. And God is there cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now, I find that most Christians have no problem believing that the Father sent the Son. I mean, it's a fairly straightforward thing to believe after you've become a Christian that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. But what is a delicious, sumptuous, marvelous thought is to think that in the same way that the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending you. Jesus says as much when we overhear him praying for you. Jesus prays to the Father for you. John seventeen eighteen. Jesus says, 
As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In the same way and to the same extent, Jesus sends you into your friendship circle, whether it be at work or your family or whatever your connection is to your neighbors, whoever it is that you know who doesn't know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, that's the bit we're really clear on, the Bible says Jesus is now sending us and the Father is with us. Fourth benefit. You'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon verse 6 says that it's through sharing our faith that we increasingly become aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, here's the story of a couple in our church called Richard and Jill Wrighton who made friends and shared their faith with this couple who are called Paul and Helena Hanley. This is an old photo of them. Now, when this photo was taken, Paul and Helena wouldn't have called themselves Christians at this time. Paul was a 35-year-old atheist. He was an insurance broker in the city of London. His wife, Helena, is a nurse. Paul and Helena have a nice house in Surrey. They're married. They have three lovely sons. Uh, Paul plays for Caterham Rugby Club. He's a keen surfer when he gets the chance. And Paul is one of those people who strongly, outspokenly, vociferously opposed to Christianity. Now, it just so happens that today, Paul Hanley is the pastor of a church. And this is actually the second church that Paul and Helena Hanley have led. And so, you kind of wonder, well, how does that happen? I mean, how do you go from being an atheist when you're 35 to leading two churches? Well, this is what happened. One afternoon, Paul and Helena go for a picnic in the park. As they arrive, they're walking along the pathway, Paul sees this couple from our church, Richard and Jill Wrighton, and Paul already knows that the lady there, Jill Wrighton, she's a nurse because she works with Paul's wife, Helena, and Jill has started to share her faith with Helena. Helena's somewhat interested, so Paul knows this is a Christian couple over there. So what he does is he deliberately blanks them, and he walks in a straight line deliberately not looking at them but as he's walking along there's been too much eye contact so he has to sort of do that thing where he says oh hi (laughs) almost walks straight by you (laughs) how you doing great to see you there's been too much eye contact so but then Paul realizes hang on a minute they're already having a picnic on the grass we are holding picnic boxes to the social rules of Surrey dictate They have to go over and sit down with Richard and Jill Wrighton. So Paul's thinking, oh no, they're Christians. How did this happen? So Paul thinks, okay, I can see what's going to happen here. Any minute now, my wife's going to ask something to this Christian couple about God or church or whatever the Christians talk about. What I'll do, seeing as I'm stuck with the Christians, I will just make fun of them. I'll be able to point out the logical fallacies. I'll be able to point out the factual inaccuracies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks to himself. And lo and behold, a couple of minutes later, Helena asks them something or other about their faith and they have a conversation for a whole hour. And Paul Hanley said that as he left the park that afternoon, holding his empty picnic boxes, putting them in the back of the car, he thinks to himself, you know, I thought it would be easy to win the conversation with the Christians, but it was actually even easier than I thought it would be. Paul remembers thinking it was just so extremely easy to point out all the things that were wrong. He puts the picnic boxes in the back of the car. He sits there, Helena's next to him. He said, I put the key in the ignition and I heard myself say, Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry, darling, I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much well there then followed a full and frank exchange of views between the uh, married couple and once it had died down a bit Paul's thinking what happened there what what where did that come from what's going on so he decides just to forget about it and he drives home when he gets home he feels this compelling urge 
to go into his study. He goes into his study. He gets out a pad of blank paper, and he just starts writing down everything that he can think of that he's ever done wrong. And he said, I went back into the study every day for three days. And when I met him, I said, Paul, why did it take you three days? He said, because I had 35 years of stuff to write down. Now, as you already know from the story, both Paul and Helena both became Christians. The first time I ever met them was their first ever Sunday at church. So I was on the door on the welcome team. This family arrive, Paul and Helen and their three sons. I'm thinking, hello, is this your first time here? And do you know anyone here? Oh yeah, we know Richard. And he starts to tell me the story about how earlier this week, he and his wife had become Christians. We're having a conversation, having a chat. And as you can imagine, I'm absolutely fascinated. And so I ask Paul the $64 million question. I say to him, Paul, what was it? What was it, Paul, that Richard and Jill Wrighton said to you that afternoon in the park that had this profound impact on your life? He said, oh, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it? He said, it was them. I said, well, what about them? He said, their purity. It was something about them. Now, he would now say, it was Christ in them. And Jill Wrighton, this lady in our church, she learned something through this process. She learned something about Philemon, verse 6. She learned, and incidentally, in case you're wondering what they're up to now, they now run this ministry, uh, an outreach to surfers. Uh, it's called Walk on Water. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's an outreach to surfers. They, they, they're leading this church in Camborne in, uh, in Cornwall. Jill Wrighton learned that as you share your faith with a colleague at work, who's also a nurse, what can happen is that God uses that connection to awaken or create within that lady's husband a desire to be pure that wasn't there before. But Paul didn't know that he wanted to be clean. And I remember asking him, what was it like when you were doing the writing? He said, oh, it's just like being sick something that Paul had often been sick. He said, well, I said, what do you mean it was like being sick? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. So he had this new desire. to He wants to be cleansed. He wants to be pure. He wants to start again. So Paul and Helen learned something about life. They learned there's more to life than being happily married, because they were happily married. They still are. There's more to life than being successful, because he was very successful in insurance in the city of London. There's more to life than having a happy family life because they have these three sons who love them and they love them. They learn there's a real God who really exists and you can know him. And it's as we're active in sharing our faith that we understand how great our inheritance in Christ really is. Fifth and final benefit this afternoon before we invite questions and draw things to a close will become more like Jesus. How so? Well, one example would be we become more like Jesus in as much as Jesus drew people to God by telling stories. Yeah? So, as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you get more and more pleasure through storytelling. After all, who was Jesus? Jesus was a storyteller. Yes, he was a traveling healer and exorcist, but Jesus primarily was an itinerant traveling storyteller. And people love to listen to his stories. They say, oh, we love that Jesus guy. Do you remember the time he came, came to Capernaum? Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. To be honest, the other teachers who come through, they're a bit boring. I mean, you've heard it all before, you know, on and on and on, the drone on and on and on. But that Jesus guy, he was amazing. In fact, next time he comes to Capernaum, let's all go. Let's bring aunties, uncles. Why don't we all go next time he comes? Because the common people heard him gladly. Storytelling. And you might hear that and think, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. But the thing is, Adrian, you don't know me. Yeah? You might be thinking. Because if you did know me, then you'd know that actually... 
I grew up in a Christian family, and actually I was only uh, eight years old when I became a Christian. So to be honest, I don't really have a story, you might think. Um, you know, I was eight, was brought up in a Christian family. In fact, my parents' parents were Christians. So I don't have a dramatic... You know, sometimes haven't you ever met Christians, particularly I find Christians from America, who have a really dramatic before and after story. And as they tell their story, it's really quite exciting. So they'll say something dramatic like, this is their before. They'll say something like, um, dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in a ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she... No, you can't say that. You can't say that because the truth is, that before you became a Christian, you were seven years old attending a Church of England primary school in Guildford. Now, when I think about this, I think about my wife, Julia, who, incidentally, she is the most effective personal evangelist I know. So my wife, Julia, has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know or have ever met. Yet Julia grew up In a wonderful, loving, Christian home, she of all people could say, well, you know, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was first running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And it was around that time that I first discovered voodoo. Does she say that? No. The truth is that Julia didn't grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. No, before Julia came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. So what is her 45-second faith story? Well, this is what she says. In fact, she's been telling this story now for 20 years. She says, as a child... I worried a lot, even though I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible, and I became a Christian age 12, and I was baptized age 13. But when I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever. I missed a lot of school, and I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence, and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. That's what she says. And one day there will be so many people in heaven that the Bible says no one will be able to count them because there'll be so many. Revelation 7, 9. There will have been a church in every language group and every people group and every ethnic group that is capable of evangelizing that tribe or nation or language group. And there will be at least one person in heaven from every single ethnic group, every language group, every tribe around the throne of God in heaven. And you and I, we get to take part in making that happen. I mean, it really will happen. And we get to be part of that. We get to be part of that journey. We get to be part of the most glorious adventure, the most thrilling thing that will ever happen in the future history of this world. The greatest marriage that there will ever be. We get to be part of that. And we get to enjoy the adventure. Thank you very much for listening to me. That is all I have to say. Thank you very much. Well, we have time for uh, several questions. Uh, so if anybody wants to uh, ask a question, my suggestion is you just raise your hand. I'll bring the microphone to you. Just enable to, uh, for us to hear. If you could hold it sort of near to your mouth, that would help. Um, and then we'll fire the question at Adrian. So who wants to go first? Questions, comments, anything you want. 
Well, let, let, me, let me just help you as, we, as you're thinking that what struck me as Adrian was speaking, and I know Adrian well anyway, is that he makes time, as his wife does, Philippa, to actually give time to people who don't know Jesus. And I, I think that's a really important thing, isn't it? That uh, we, we just see that it's okay to do that. <laughs> In fact, it's essential to do that. To have stories to tell, um, that's basically what you've got to do. Um, you know, and you haven't got to be qualified. You haven't got to be have a dynamic story. Uh, you just by the way you live, because you love Jesus, it's pretty catching, isn't it? It's catching. Um, so, they're giving you a bit of time to think. Um, anything that Adrian said, or not even said, excellent. Let me just come and give you the microphone. Just like to say your name first and where you're from, and then just please address the question. So I'm Dave from Manchester. It's a bit eerie when you hear your voice coming from all over there. Um, Listening to you, it sounds very easy. Why is it that churches across the country find this so hard? Okay, listening to this, it sounds easy. Why do churches find it so hard? That's a really good question. Thank you for asking. There's a number of reasons. One reason is because people don't actually hear what I've just talked about. When they hear the word evangelism, what they associate that with is talking to strangers. Even though that might not be your experience of evangelism or even my experience of evangelism, that, that is something that for most British people will be an intimidating prospect you and I would probably agree that when you're actually doing it, it can be quite exciting, but the bit before you do it is so scary, it puts people off. So that's one reason. That people haven't yet heard of a way that doing evangelism could work for them that would be fun. So you might be wondering, why choose to talk about how to be happy, partly to solve the question you're raising, which is a lot of people think it's scary, Whereas I found this is actually a way that you can enjoy life more. Seeing as you've signed up for Christianity, why not cash in on the benefits? And Jesus' whole mission is, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. So Jesus obviously thinks it's a good thing. He thinks it's a good thing because you become more like God. Because God is fishing men. So that would be one reason. Another reason would be that, in my opinion, people have a wrong theological understanding of what success in evangelism is so I'm not motivated particularly to do things where I think I'm a failure at that thing like if you asked me to retake French O level that would be a really bad demotivating thing because I found that really really hard and so for some people evangelism is a bit like the subject you found hardest at school it's like going up to some Christian and saying pray more it's something they find really hard And the reason why I think they have a bad theological understanding is because they think that success in evangelism is when people become Christians. And they don't think that the sowing side of things, which Jesus talked a lot about sowing and reaping, where you help somebody get a little bit closer, they don't think that counts as success in evangelism. So if you think that you're a failure, let's say I've been a Christian for 13 years, I haven't led any of my friends to Christ, I'm no good at evangelism. I'm likely to focus on something else that actually maybe somebody says thanks very much. Even if it's putting out the chairs on a Sunday or playing in the worship band, there's all kinds of things within the life of the church where at least somebody shows some appreciation. I think, oh, that's where my gifting is. Oh, I did try evangelism, but I'm 20 years down the road. Still nobody's become a Christian, so that isn't obviously my gifting. So partly it's a theological misunderstanding. Jesus was really positive about sowing. He tells parables about like the growing seed. It's not that the seed suddenly appears out of nowhere. Jesus teaches us there's a process. When Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, and she gives her life to Christ, and they reflect upon the success, Jesus says, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. When he arrives at the well, the woman already believes in God. She already believes the Bible. She's already expecting the Messiah to come. She says to Jesus that, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's waiting for the Messiah. Somebody else told her all this stuff about God and the Bible and Jesus and the Messiah. John the Baptist and the prophets over the centuries have sown the word of God into Samaria. Jesus and his team do the reaping. So we need to teach about evangelism in a way that helps people 
see that they're a success, even in helping people get closer to faith in Christ. And then finally, and I'm going to be brief about this because I majored on this in a different seminar yesterday, church leaders need to work hard to find a strategy that works for their church. Because if you and I are in a church where we're regularly seeing people come to faith in Christ, that makes the whole thing seem much more real and exciting. If you're hearing the same thing from the lead elder as you're hearing from the person in the baptism pool giving their testimony, they're telling the same story. When there's two people in your small group who've become Christians in the last four months, the whole momentum grows and there are churches like that. And I've experienced that for myself. And everybody wants to get in the game because this is the fun bit. I mean, the prayer meeting is good. The prophesying, the praying, yeah, it's good. The music's good. But the really fun stuff is people's lives changing. And the fact that these two people, we used to pray for them, and look, now they're here. Or Steve Heard in the front row told a story yesterday about somebody he used to pray for who's now on site. Someone who used to be like someone they would pray would become a Christian is now a delegate here. That's exciting. So when you get the momentum, then that everybody thinks, oh, yeah, 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 everyone wants to get in the game. So you need to find something that different evangelistic styles to fit different people finding, helping, coaching, mentoring people to find a way of doing this that works for them, that fits with their temperament, that fits with their personality type. I hope some of those things are helpful. There's some at the back there, Mike, at the very back. What do you do when you're used to doing it all the time, Adrian, and then you go, it seems to go flat and it affects you emotionally that you can't keep doing it because you feel like you've done it for so long and you're getting people in we started a church two years ago with four bus it's up to 38 people but the last six months there's been nobody coming through the door it flattens me because I want to be seeing people coming to God I want to be out there doing it what do you do to recharge your batteries on that Okay, so the question, I, I didn't catch all of it, but I think it's basically how do you sustain your own personal motivation? And this gentleman was saying that he, when his church started, they had four people, and now you've got 38, but you've had six months where you haven't added any more people. Well, first of all, I think it's amazing that you've gone from four to 38. I think that's brilliant. I'm sure everybody else is thinking the same thing. Hey, I'd be happy to be in issues, yeah. <laughs> so that's fantastic. So, I mean, first of all, I, I, would, in, I would encourage you that Um, if it really is true what Jesus says about sowing and reaping, then what about all those people who were miles away from God, who haven't yet become Christians and haven't joined your church, but they're closer than they were? What about the people that you've made friends with? Yeah, they haven't become Christians, but the fact is they've now got a Christian next-door neighbor. Personally, right now, one couple on one side of me, their Christian family, the other side are on a journey, you know, if we weren't living there, if we weren't had our kids in the schools that our kids are in, if we hadn't moved where we live, these people might not have a born-again Christian in their life. So there are people who are coming closer to faith in Christ. I told you a minute ago that my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist I know. Of her friends who came to Christ, the most recent one took 20 years. And without going into all the details, it was only after she'd experienced a personal tragedy in her life that she suddenly became really open spiritually. So people are on a journey in. Now, just because it's a bit like being a a farmer and being frustrated that it's not yet harvest time, but actually the crops are growing. And if you're sowing seed, that's what God's called you to do. God has called you to be faithful not successful. And I would say, go and meditate on the parable of the growing seed and see if God speaks to you. And you'll come away feeling encouraged, I suspect. But it's a great question. Should we have one or two more? One more? Yeah. Yeah. My name's Andrew from Stockport Family Church in Manchester. You heard me yesterday. Um, We've got quite a few friends who are successful and wealthy and... um, it's, and they, they turn down offers to come to this, that, and the other. And I, I wonder if um, you treat people any different when they appear to be wealthy and successful, in that 
they've, they've, they've always got better offers open to them. And so uh, so I didn't hear the end of the question. Yeah, uh, people who are kind of wealthy and successful, yeah. family members I'm thinking of as well, they've, yeah. they've got so many offers yeah. open and options open to themselves. Yes, yes. That how do you attract them to events or, or to how do you, do you talk to them any differently? That's the question. Yeah, do I talk to them any differently? Um, no, not necessarily. And I think that it is important that we accept the fact that we're not ultimately responsible because I can't actually make them feel guilty about their sin. Even if every time they open the front door, I preached sin and judgment to them as they're on their way to the car, that wouldn't actually necessarily make them feel convicted that they really are sinners. So there is a sense in which we need to do, um, we, we need to take off ourselves the responsibility for making them like that. My approach is, and here I'm thinking of some particular friends of mine, um, is to play the long game. Now, I'll just be honest, this is how I think about it, okay? I have a theory about life, which is that during the course of a 70, 80, 90-year life, for everyone, even people living in Western Europe, even very affluent people, there is at least one moment when they're spiritually open, and for some people in Northern Europe, that's when something's gone wrong, okay? A bereavement, a divorce, a redundancy, and therefore... With some of my friends, all I'm trying to do is to stay connected to them because I am sure that that day will come eventually. And with two of my friends, that day came two years ago when both of them became divorced. And in one particular case, I ended up sharing the gospel with him in a way that would have been completely unthinkable for the previous 20 years. There were, I mean, for the twen those 20 years, there's absolutely no way that he would ever have allowed me or let me talk to him about spiritual things where he looked me in the eye. But on this occasion, he was actually asking me. And his friends were overhearing it and were taking the mickey out of him that he was opening himself up to religion as they saw it, but he didn't mind because he felt he had a need. So I think if you take that approach and think, hey, yeah, your company's growing great. Your marriage is great. As far as you're concerned, your castle is secure. I'm just going to stay friends with you. I'll keep inviting you. I'll try and live a consistent life. But I've got a sneaking feeling that at some point, something is going to come along whereby if I'm still friends with you and that happens, we might have a conversation. So I think you can keep praying and stay connected to people and not think it's my responsibility to make them feel guilty about their sin because you can't actually make that happen. And also, here I'll just add a little theological PS. If you do believe in the sovereignty of God, and if you do believe that actually, in the end, there's going to be a massive end-time church, then people like your friend and family members Many of these people have to be converted in order to have this vast number of people in Revelation 7-9. It can't be that there's a tiny number of people that actually get saved. There has to be, if Revelation's true, this huge end-time move of God. In my opinion, loads of people in Europe will have to get converted to produce the number of missionaries to produce the harvest in India that we're going to have to see. Let's make this the, the last question. I'm sure Adrian will deal with other questions personally if you want to uh, speak with him, but just for the sake of everybody, it's been quite hot now as well. Last question here, please. Hi, it's uh, Rupert from Jubilee in Derby. Um, Adrian, it's really helpful just how you shared that story of friends who didn't have to use particular words, how they were just themselves and something came across. I guess I was just wondering um, if there's been times when you've sort of tried to sort of sort of lean in with the Holy Spirit and just sort of, I don't know exactly, prophesy, maybe not, just kind of be a bit natural and just sort of listen to what God's doing as you're trying to sort of witness to people. Have just any sort of advice in terms of trying to do that without coming across as a total wacko or well, just... Well, thank you for asking the question. I want to be honest with you and say that I'm 
I'm really bad at that. I'm, I'm not, there might be somebody else, and here I might need some help, who can share a better story. I can actually only think right now of one time when that happened to me recently, and that was a time where it is, wasn't even spontaneous then. I'd actually been praying for a prophecy for this guy who's not a Christian, and I'd been praying for a chance to share this prophecy with him. So it was all pre-planned. This is how bad my answer is. So I went up to him and said, I think that you'll think of this as being a bit strange, but you know I'm a Christian, and so you probably won't be that surprised to know that I do pray for my friends. Well, the other day I was praying for you, actually, and when I was praying for you, I felt God was saying this. And so he was just sort of standing there thinking, what? And so I just kept going, thinking if I keep talking, he probably won't say anything. And, and eventually it was okay. And actually what I said to him did seem to make sense. But it was not a kind of, I'm in the middle of a conversation, I'm waiting on the Holy Spirit to hear what are you saying. I'm rubbish at that. But maybe somebody else could finish the seminar with a great upbeat story. Maybe somebody can help me out and we'll all go out thinking, yay! I'd like to do that. Hey! (laughs) Yeah, no, I I find it happens to me quite regularly, actually. Um, But I am very normal as well. Um, I I think the answer to me is that God wants to speak to us all the time. um, But he wants us to be normal as well. Um, but I, so I'm just one instance, it, it happened to me in a hotel room. Uh, I'm just sitting there waiting for somebody to come along uh, to pick me up. And, uh, and I felt God speak to me and say, you need to go and say this to this person over there. And um, so this person over there was sitting right next to the gent's toilet. So I thought, well, that's, that's, I'll walk towards the gent's toilet. And then I found myself going into the gents' toilet and ducking it completely. And I came out, and God spoke to me again and said, you need to do it. Because that's the hardest thing, isn't it? So I went up to him, and this, this particular thing, like, which I felt God say, was quite, quite dramatic, really, as well. It, wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was going to be either right immediately or completely wrong immediately. And uh, so I just shared this with this person. And they said, you know, that's strange. That's exactly why we're here. We're here on the Isle of Man visiting my sick relative. And yes, um, the word death is right on my mind at the moment. Uh, how did you know that? And we just sat down. Uh, I love to say I led this person to Christ, but that didn't happen then. But uh, what happened was, is that God grabbed their attention. And um, it enabled me to say a, a fair amount about Jesus, actually. And that... Um, also saying to them that here's a way you can follow this up as well. So I'm sure there's many, many other stories here. Uh, let me just say thank you so much for coming. Um, I know Steve and Terry and I would say, uh, and others too here, that this is so important for our churches, isn't it? Just to God wants to fill us with the Spirit to give us opportunities to just live our lives out in front of people and on many, many occasions affect them in deep ways. And sometimes we'll have opportunities of just sharing words about Jesus. Because that's got to come in the end that will change their lives dramatically. And, uh, you know, whether it's working with uh, um, affluent people or very poor people, everybody needs Jesus, don't they, basically. And God loves the world. And we we know that much. So, you know, he sent Jesus to die. You know that. And I I think what struck me is my final thought here about devoted is I, I personally gone to um, had a real difficult choice where should I go in the mornings, but I've gone to listen to Alan Rose, and I, and I think we need to be wowed by the move of the Spirit, but we also need to be wowed by the Word of God. And I find my challenge is to have that in equal balance. You know, I, I don't want to just become a wild, wacky Christian. Um, I'm up for that. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I, I, I've known moments recently just said that's happened incredibly. But I also want to be full of God's Word. And I want to be wowed by the Jesus that's presented in God's world. And I want to be fully available, like I'm sure you do. That's why you're here this afternoon, 
to take this amazing message, isn't it, and live it out in front of people and share it with as many who are willing to listen. And I want to have people, friends, who aren't coming to the church. I want to have friends in my life and in my wife's life and in our home who live in our neighborhood who don't go to church. Um, and I, I trust that's your challenge as well. So thanks so much for coming. Can we just thank Adrian once more for his time and effort? Thank you so much, Adrian. If you want to um, talk to Adrian personally, feel free to do that. I'm sure he's just here to, uh, to, to answer any more questions for you. Thank you so much.